We're going to pick up where we left off last week as we began to build this foundation. We're talking about the idea of an identity crisis and what that means. And, and to understand this is we're looking for the identity of the church today. Who we are, what we've done, where we stand, and why we stand on it. And the problem is, is we're all over the place as far as what our belief system is inside the church. I was just reading something this morning, as a matter of fact. There's this trifacian initiative in Omaha where you've got a Muslim mosque, you've got a Christian church, and you have a Jewish synagogue on one property. And they come together because you know why? Do you know why they come together and can work so well together? The reason they can do that is because we serve the same God. We just call Him by different names. Now that sounds good, only if it's true. The problem is, it's not true. Truth matters. There's standards. Truth matters. It is true that we serve Yahweh, the God of the Bible. It is true that Israel, Jewish people, would worship the same God the Father. The problem is they rejected their Messiah. So we aren't worshiping the same God. And while Muhammad and the Muslims would look at Jesus as a prophet, they reject him as the Son of God. And so we have a distinction there. So you can believe what you want, but that doesn't make it true. And what they're trying to do is like, can't we all just get along? And the problem we have here is Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword to separate father, son, daughter, mother, brother against brother. He's coming and making a distinction, but the church today is just trying to get along. We just want to be nice. We just want to coexist. We can't. We can't coexist because we have polar opposite beliefs and the beliefs that we hold matter. Truth matters. And we want to reject truth. And we want to just go with what feels good. And do what feels right. And all of this stuff. Do you realize this? I don't know if you know this or not. But your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will overblow a situation. You ever been in that? Where you had to have a tough conversation. And you're just playing through it in your mind. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And then you have that conversation. And more often than not, it was way worse in your head than it was in real life. I don't know what these things are called. But have you ever been on one of those, it's this ride you get in. And it's got a screen. It's usually a roller coaster, a spaceship or something. Where it moves with it. And so as you're watching it go up the hill, you're in this thing. And it feels like... You're going up the hill, but you're not going up the hill. And then as it comes over the crest, it feels like you're going down the hill. You can feel your heart racing, the G, you feel it all. But none of it's true. You're inside of this little cab. You're not doing any of that stuff. Your feelings lie to you. The church today is so caught up in its emotion and its feeling that we lost sight of what is true and what is important. And so when we look at identity, this is the definition we've used. The collective aspect, the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. The set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognized as a member of a group. And the quality of condition of being the same as something else. What is the identity of the church? If you said in America, we don't know. But what should the identity of the church be? It's found right here. This is the identity of the church. It holds the truth of it. The church born and birthed in Acts chapter 2. And what was the result of that church? That was a church that watched Jesus die, watched him get buried, and watched him resurrect. That was a church that was so grounded in that truth that they risked their lives for it every day. That was a church that walked in power and cohesiveness. And they walked around on mission from God. Because they knew that they had a purpose. And they knew that time was short and Jesus was returning. And all these brethren 
that were around them needed to hear about it. That is not the church today, at least not here. Other parts of the world it is. Other parts of the world, they're on mission. If you compare the heart and attitude of the church in, in third world countries where it is illegal to be a Christian compared to what it is in America, it is night and day difference. It's kind of like the movie Rudy. Did you ever see Rudy? I mean, of course you saw Rudy, right? Yoli. Come on now. We're gonna, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a Rudy party. But in Rudy, here's this too small, too slow kid who wanted to play for Notre Dame. And the only reason he made it is because he absolutely refused to quit. I mean, no matter what the drill was, he was getting his tail handed to him, but he just kept playing. And one of the coaches looked at him and said, I wish I could take your heart and put it in my other players' bodies. Well, I'll tell you what. I wish I could take their heart and put it in our church bodies today. Because that's all they care about. When I was in the Philippines a couple of years ago, and we were, you know, I went in there and I'm working with the church and stuff like that, it was amazing how much Americanism had crept into the church. Because what did they see on TV when they watched it? American church. So this must be the things that you do. And I pleaded with them. I was like, please do not mimic us. This will not end well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you realize that the body of Christ today is doing everything it can to disprove that verse? To make that verse not true. Because we don't act like, if we're in Christ, that whatever was of the past is now dead and gone and buried. And we are a new creation resurrected in the same power that Jesus was. That we are seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus because He is the head and we are the body. And if He is the head, He's directing His body what to do. That means that we are His hands, we are His feet, we are His mouth. And whatever He says goes. But that's not what we're doing. We do whatever feels good goes. And so as we began to look at this, we realized that there is a distinction between the body of Christ and the world. There's two classes of people inside of the New Testament. Those who are born again and those who are not, right? You're either with Him, in Him, or you're not. That's it. Your race, your nationality, all this other stuff really is irrelevant at that point. Because you're either in Christ or you're not. But that's the same way it was in the Old Testament, is you were either Israel or you were somebody else. And with the nation of Israel, you notice that they were to be separated. Separated from every other nation out there. There was to be no overlap. They weren't supposed to intermarry. They weren't supposed to adopt the custom. And if you came from a foreign nation and wanted to come and worship Yahweh, you would have to reject your heritage, your upbringing, and your nationality. And you would come in here, you would circumcise yourself, and you would come underneath that covenant by keeping the commandments. And you were to be treated like a naturally born Jew. There was no distinction. But that was how you did it. Because now you are separated, one with Israel. They were to be different. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 53, it says, For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So they were separated by God. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, says, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. 
And we've read several of these verses that talk about this. Israel was special, unique, separated. And what really made them unique is that unlike every nation around them, Israel didn't have an earthly king. God was their king. The purpose of the king was he would judge the people and he would go out before them and come back with them. He'd go out in battle and come back. And this was the role that the king did. And what we saw is that God filled that role. And I talked about last week how there's been this misnomer out there that Israel was never set up to have a king. But God gave them one because they wanted one. But that's not exactly true. In Genesis 35, verse 10, it says, God said to them, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel should be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So this is the nation himself. Genesis 49, verse 8 is a prophecy. It said, Judah, you are uh, he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter is a reference to the king. Shiloh is a reference to Messiah. It was spoken by God that kings would come from Israel. Not kings for other nations. Kings for themselves. He even directly gave them instructions on how a king should act. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, says, When you come to the land, that's the promised land, which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren whom shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return the way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. From the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. If Israel was not intended to have a king, he sure went to great lengths to make sure that when you got one, you got a good one. So it wasn't a lack of intention for Israel to have a king, that when they clamored to give us a king, that wasn't the problem. Because God had foreordained that they would have one. He was acting like one in their stay now, but God had a plan they would have a king. But in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see where it went wrong. Verse 1, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonor gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is where they went wrong. Why do they want a king? They could be like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. 
that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day I had brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. His son will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, female servants, finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourself and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So he's given them solemn warning. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And he said, no, we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And that king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the Lord and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And Samuel said, to, uh, the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. You see, their method and their reasoning was the problem. Give us a king so we can be like every other nation. But the birth of Israel was to separate Israel. The first thing that God said to Abraham was, get up out of your country and go to a place that I will show you. He separated them immediately. And from the beginning, they were to be separated and different. And now they are breaking that commandment because they want to be just like everybody else. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 1, it says, Samuel said to all Israel, indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and I made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am, witness against me before the Lord, before his anointed, whose ox I have taken, whose donkey I have taken, or whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed, or whom, uh, from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes. I will restore to you. And they said, you have not cheated or oppressed us, nor have you taken any from any man's hand. Then he said, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And he said, they answered, he is witness. Samuel said to the people, is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them in the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against him. Then they cried out to the Lord, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. And he served the Baals and the Asherah, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Baden, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but we, a king, shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. 
Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father. Now therefore... Stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes is today not the wheat harvest. I will call the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of your Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your service to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. You see, God gave them what they wanted. But their reasoning was the problem. A nation to be separated to serve Yahweh was distinct because God went out and fought their battles for them. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but I, I've never had to tear down a wall. But if I did, my method is not going to be to march around it seven times and yell real loud. It's going to be calling the rental yard and getting a big piece of equipment and knocking that sucker out of there. I mean, the thing is, is that God went before them and everywhere they went, the fear of God was on the people they were going into because they had heard how God had brought them out of Egypt, how he split the Red Sea, how they went through on dry land. They had heard what God had done and there was fear there. But now, that's not good enough. They want to be like everybody else. And that is the problem that we're having in the church today. The reason we have an identity crisis is we just want to fit in. We just want to get along. We just want to be like everybody else. We just want to coexist. And the problem with that is, is Jesus couldn't pull it off. What makes you think you will? The portraying of Jesus in America today is not the Jesus of the Bible. He wasn't a hippie. He wasn't a flower child. He was not all peace and sunshine and roses. He, he flipped a few tables and he whipped a few tail ends. I mean, my goodness. You see, we've got to understand something. There was something unique about them. And in the covenant that officially separated the keeping of the Sabbath and all of these different things, the signs of those covenant came the Ten Commandments. And we often don't look at those because those are part of the Mosaic Covenant. There's no question about it. But it's unique in what it is and we're going to focus our attention on the third commandment today okay in exodus 20 verse 7 this is the you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain now you've heard me talk about this before because that's a true statement you should not take the name of your lord the lord your god in vain the problem is is we've twisted the meaning the meaning of this has become you just don't say god's name and a curse word but is that what it meant? And is that all it says? Because if you read the second half of verse 7, you'll notice this. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, those are big words. Because to us, we talk about the name of God. To a Jew, an Israelite, they had the unpronounceable name of God. There, there's the stories of how the scribes, before they would write it, would wash their hands. All of these things. Like, they took it seriously. But what does it mean to take His name? Because you won't be held guiltless if you take it vainly. 
In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, it says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You shall not swear by God's name falsely or profane the name of your God. Now, you'll notice something is that God is kind of big on his name. And what does it even mean? And how does one profane it? We often say we profane it by using it in vulgarity. That's a bad idea, okay? But that's not what this is talking about. No, you should not do that. But what this is talking about is something completely different. If we look at the definition of profane, it says to treat something sacred with abuse, irreverence, or contempt, to desecrate it, to debase by a wrong, unworthy, or vulgar use. When we talk about, you hear people's like, don't scour the name of your family. You're making your family's name. You hear this about people that grew up in, in maybe a, a, a certain class or a certain wealth or all of this stuff, and then you get these people that, that these kids that grow up and they don't appreciate it and they kind of run wild and all of that. And you're, you're discrediting your family name. You've got to live up to your family name. You, to profane the name of God is to mean, I am taking on the name of Yahweh Himself. But through my words and actions, not living up to the level of that name. I am taking His name, but not living with what that comes with. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 111, verse 9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Have you ever wondered why he's so hung up on his name? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Isn't that weird? Hallowed means to worship, to adore. His name? How about him? You realize that your name doesn't make you? Some of us are thankful, especially our parents who had too much uh, medication when they were giving birth and gave us a bad middle name. If you're wondering, my middle name is Frank. Okay? I know. Sad. I know it could be worse. It could be Mason. Malachi verse chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to the, its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We kind of keep seeing this trend. It's his name. It's constantly talking about his name. Philippians 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's His name. His name. The name above every name. The one to which every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. It's that name that we claim to take on. The name of Jesus. When you call yourself a Christian, there are strings attached to that. Whether we like it or not. And going back to what we talked about in the beginning is that most of us in here are not Christians because it's convenient. Because let's be honest, it would be a lot more convenient in this world if there were no standards, if Christianity doesn't exist. But we are Christians because it's true. Because God created everything and man sinned 
ruining that creation. But God intervened in His creation and sent His death, or His Son to die for us. That truth is what we lie on. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, it says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest his own time. He who is blessed and the pontifant, the King of kings, And the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. You see, we walk this out until Christ appearing to whom? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that's an interesting phrase, because that is a title of Jesus. You see this in a few other places. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Are you with Him? Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a big deal. Why is this a big deal? You see, many people have claimed to make Jesus their Savior. But many people have not made Him their Lord. There's a difference. Because He came to propitiate salvation for us. To step in, intervene. And that salvation is there. And we can receive that. That's a free gift. But to make Him your Lord is something completely different. Because when He is your Lord, that means His ways go. That means I am not my own. Because at the time, as we read about, when you have a king, here's what's going to happen. Your children don't belong to you. And your goods don't belong to you. In fact, they all belong to the king. And he may let you have some of them. But it's all his. He's going to take this stuff. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your fields. He's going to take your olive grove. He's going to take it all. Are you sure this is what you want? And why did they want it? Because there was a king coming against them. And they were scared. Should they have been scared? No. Everything in their history had shown that God stepped in and intervened. But you know what? That's short-lived, isn't it? No different than us. We can watch God intervene supernaturally in our lives. And in a few short months, we can be right back where we were. You see, king of kings and lord of lords means that there are kings and there are lords. And Jesus is up here. And that's where we are today is He's our Savior, but He's not our Lord. In John 3, verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to most assuredly, I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Down to verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, this is the moment of salvation. But that, that is just, you know what, Lord? I know I need this. I know I need this forgiveness. I know I'm a sinner and all of that. We go through this process and we may cry and all of that. But at that moment, 
we may be right with God. But that's not where it stops. Because we are to crucify our flesh. We are to renew our mind. Our lives need to be lorded over by Jesus himself. He's the head, we're the body. He tells us what to do. That means your children don't belong to you. And your things don't belong to you. Your businesses, your farms, your money. It doesn't belong. It's his. What does he want you to do with him? That means when a pile of bees fly up into your farm, you start an aviary and you start getting them in there and you start making honey. Uh, you don't make the honey. You steal the honey from the bees, actually. I wonder where that thou shalt not steal part comes in. The thing, that's just it, though, guys. It's like, what do we do and what do we own that belongs to us? And the answer is not a thing. It is His. My action are His. My words are His. My stuff is His. My kids are His. And someday, I'll let them have them back. Depends on the day. And that's where we are. Yeah, we're born again and we live under grace and it's okay, I can do this, I can say that, I can drink this, I can live whatever way I want because we're under grace and not under the law. Really? Because is He your Lord? Because if He is, it starts to change things. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. It says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So therefore, whether we live or we die... We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And there's many of us that can't say that this is true. Because while He may be our Savior, He's yet to become our Lord. We don't do our work unto Him. We don't live our lives unto Him. We don't raise our families unto Him. We don't do that. In John chapter 15, verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the Lord hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, for they do not know him who sent me. They hated Jesus because he stood for what was true. And that truth flew in the face of what was believed and accepted. And that truth lingered beyond the time of Christ, during the time of the apostles, beyond that, so much so that it turned the Roman world upside down, that they began to destroy all the ancient writings that they could get their hands on, which is why we have over 26,000 fragments of the New Testament more than any other book of antiquity because they were torn and they were put in pieces to get them from one place to the next. That's why we don't have an entire copy of the Hebrew Scriptures because these guys, these leaders, these Roman leaders, Diocletian and the, and the like, were out there destroying them because what they did, they lived to the Lord. And when they died, they died to the Lord. That means that when they're in Smyrna and they're going down there, they refuse to pinch the incense and say, Caesar is Lord. They sacrifice their life. We won't sacrifice our friends. We won't sacrifice our comfort. Because we don't live to the Lord. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is a popular verse. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is when they're getting ready to Hanukkah, the temple. This is Solomon talking before he really lost his mind. 
But what is the difference? The people who are called by my name. That means there are people who are not. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 9, it says, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Isaiah 43, verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Isaiah 63, verse 19, We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. You guys picking up on something? Isaiah 52, verse 1, Awake, awake, put your, on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O d- captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day therefore my people shall know my name therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks behold it is I again what do we see his name my people who are called by my name Ezekiel 36 verse 16 moreover the word of the Lord came to me saying son of man when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land they defiled it by their own ways and deeds what were they supposed to be doing his ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman and her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said to them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now let me ask you this question. God is constantly getting on Israel because they profaned his name, not only in their land, but the nations saw that. Wait a minute. This is the people of the Lord, and now they're not in his land? Why is that? It's because they profaned his name amongst the nations. And let me ask you this. If God was standing here talking to his church today, what would he be saying? You have profaned my name in this earth through what you say and the way you live. You're not my representative. You've now taken my name in vain because all you've done is made me your savior. And yeah, you may be in, but have you made him the Lord over your life? Does he own everything? Is he the King of kings and the Lord of lords in your life? Does he own everything you have? Every moment you're awake, every breath you take, does it belong to him? Do your words bring glory to him? Do your actions speak about his greatness, his mercy, compassion, his love? Is that what's going on? Or would he look at the church today and say, you know what? I would cast you out too. 
This is where we are. Because we have muddied the water. We are trying to be one with God and one with the world. And we can't have both. Because they are conflicting truth. It is true that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And when you give your life to Him, you now belong to Him. And your life should be a reflection of that grace and mercy and goodness. But it is also true that those of the world hate those over there. They don't want anything to do with them. And when you try to appease them, you are not doing them any good. You are simply showing them that you really don't believe what you say. Your actions and your words do not match up. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So let's stop. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. This is where Christ is. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Remember, that is the place of authority. You set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. All of these things, are we doing that today? No, we are not. Our mind is not set on things above. We are really focused on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So you notice he makes a distinction. God's wrath is being poured out on the acts of the flesh. He says you put that to death. The sons of disobedience will be judged for that. You once walked in that way. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who was renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Christ is all in all. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Put off that old man. This new one has been renewed, recreated. It's now in the image of Him. Verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, this new man does everything in the name of Jesus. The name above every name. The man of God today has taken the Lord's name in vain. Because we've taken His name. We call ourselves believers and Christians, but we don't act like this is true. We have to make a decision. Because you can do whatever you want. It's a free world. God gives you freedom to choose whom you're going to serve. But the church must be obedient. The church should look like Jesus. It should sound like Jesus. It should respond like Jesus. 
we've taken the names of the Lord in vain. Whatever we do in word and in deed, we do it for the glory of God. We've got to get back to that. Do you realize that everything you do matters? There's going to come a day where we all stand in front of God. And He's going to play us every opportunity that we have missed. Everything that we have done, we're going to stand there. And are you going to be concerned at that moment how your football team did? How much money you made? What you did with your time? The only thing you're going to be concerned with is the missed opportunities. Think about this. There is a good chance that somebody today is in hell because you didn't take the opportunity to go talk to them. And I don't want to live like that. I don't want to waste a day. I don't want to waste a minute. Every day counts. Amen. You guys with me? I know this is heavy, but think about it. Look at the world around us. If the church was living like this for the last hundred years, would we be dealing with what we're dealing with today? Absolutely not. Because the church is nothing more than a thermometer. We move with whatever the temperature is moving. We need to get back to being the thermostat and controlling the moral direction of our country that we can live righteously and unashamedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They make whatever laws they want. That doesn't change what we say and what we do. The day is coming where that will not be true. The day is coming where it will cost you all. Where you're going to make a decision. Am I going to pinch that incense? Am I going to say Caesar is Lord? Or am I going to willingly lay down my life for what I know is true? The day is coming. We cannot bow down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. It is your word that reveals all truth to us, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, as we continue in this, that we are growing in our knowledge of you and that you are convicting our hearts of where we have missed and convicting our hearts where we have just blasé gone through life, that we've just simply existed and been here, Lord, but we are not living devoted to you, that you haven't been our Lord and that we are now going to devote everything to you, give our lives wholly to you, to live our lives as a reflection of your goodness. May our words bring glory to your name. May our actions bring glory to your name, Lord. May everything that we say and do bring glory to your name. That we will be a representative of who you are and your goodness and mercy. Of your power and love. And Lord, that may we go every day as an opportunity. And that we will not squander it. That you are glorified in every aspect of our lives. We thank you for those opportunities. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.